Uh, it's been great. It's been a gift, really, privileged to be with you guys, uh, have this time together this weekend. Um, I know most of you, most of you know who, uh, who I am. Most of you are familiar with our, our family. Uh, my wife, Kelly, is here uh, with us today. We just celebrated uh, 25 years of marriage uh, this uh, past June. Uh, we have five five children, uh, two that are married. One of our one of our uh, our oldest, our oldest daughter, son-in-law, are here with us. Um, our oldest son was married back in January um, of uh, of this year, and then we have a son, uh, Caleb, who is in his third year at Kennesaw State, uh, now uh, dating a girl that he um, got to know from school. And I'm just joking about that part. <laughs> Just make sure my wife's listening and my daughter, so they both perked up. Uh, no, and I, we're fine with that. We're fine with that. So he's in a good place. Uh, we have another daughter that's a senior in high school and then a son that's in eighth grade. Uh, I, I've been in ministry since, really since, since high school. Uh, started into ministry at age 19. Um, Kelly and I married when uh, we were uh, 19. Is that right? 20? And, uh, and had Tiffany at 21, 22, are you sure? Okay, 22. Uh, see, we wouldn't have done good at that game. That game, was, that game last night would have been rough. Um, but uh, I, I, to be honest, we, we didn't, I would say, get off to a, a strong start. Um, I, I had only been a believer uh, for a few years uh, after, shortly after we started uh, dating uh, Kelly became a believer, and then we were, like I said, quick, quickly into ministry and into to, to married life. Um, I think, for the most part, people just made a lot of assumptions about us. We were very faithful in the church. We we had a love for Christ. We loved the church, loved the Lord. Uh, but those people that were around us, I think, just sort of looked at our marriage and and basically concluded that well, if Joel loves the Lord and Kelly loves the Lord, they'll be fine. And so we didn't have a lot of, of discipleship. Uh, we weren't really involved with other couples, sort of getting prepared for for a married life. We did have premarital counseling. It was very brief. Uh, to my knowledge, it was just a couple of sessions. Uh, we were given a couple of books to read. One of those books that we were given to read to prepare for marriage was titled His Needs and Her Needs, Building an Affair-Proof Marriage. Uh, it was a, it's a book written back in the mid-80s uh, by William Hardley. Uh, he was a, a clinical psychologist, uh, a professing, professing Christian. But basically in this book, he, he outlines what he calls things that husbands and wives cannot live without. And then he goes on and from all of his, his uh, research and from all the, the thousands of hours of counseling that he had done as a marriage therapist, he sort of uh, synthesizes and boils this down to five basic needs of a husband, five basic needs of a wife. And so this book has been reprinted, I think, twice, uh, so it's still still available. Uh, but these are the things that he says husbands and wives cannot do without. He says that a, a husband needs these five things. He needs sexual fulfillment. Secondly, he needs his wife to be his playmate, and he goes on to talk about really the idea of recreational companionship and just the, whatever the guy's interested in, the activities and the games and the hobbies that he needs his wife to, to be a part of that and to support that. 
Thirdly, he needs a good-looking wife. And he actually said, that's actually the name of the title uh, of that uh, of a particular chapter. Uh, says that he needs his wife to be attractive. Uh, fourth, which I'm all about this, he says that husbands need peace and quiet. Which actually I think is a need. It's not a want. It's not a desire. It's, it is a it is a need of all those things. I see that's 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 probably one I can. I think I think I need that. Uh, parenthetically, he calls this domestic support, uh, and I think whatever that is, he just says his wife should be supportive enough in the home that he can I I guess come home and enjoy peace and quiet after he's fulfilled his responsibilities in the workplace. And then he says, fifthly, that he needs for her to be proud of him. He talks about this issue of admiration. On the flip side, he says that wives need affection, first of all. Secondly, she needs her husband to talk to her. Thirdly, she needs uh, to be able to trust her husband totally and talks about openness and honesty. Fourthly, wives will appreciate this, especially the one last night in the game that, that mentioned shopping as a sport. Um, but she needs enough money to live comfortably. Um, and fifth, she needs him to be a good father to their children. Of course, all this is based upon this idea that, that we have uh, these emotional needs and that as husbands and wives, we need to be familiar and aware of those things and we need to try to, to meet those things. And he even says this, that the heart of what, mer- what makes marriage work, and he actually says this, it is, it is the feeling of love. That is what makes, makes marriage work. When you think about that, I thought that's, that's a little different than what Brian Irby talked about last night. That's a little different than what Shane Kohler talked about earlier today. Very, very different from what we've heard at this conference. We've heard things like trusting Christ, believing the gospel, confession, repentance, forgiveness, self-denial, submitting to Christ, living out the calling of the gospel, but not a lot about feelings of love, not a lot about what we might perceive to be needs, which I think once we make the mistake of putting these kinds of things into the category of needs rather than just desires and wants, that they quickly become idolatrous desires and then quickly morph into things that we expect and demand. Uh, in in marriage, and then there goes there goes the expectations. Uh, the reality is that we're never going to have nobody's ever going to be able to meet those needs. No, no 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 wife is going to be able to meet those needs completely in the life of her husband, and the same for a husband meeting those needs in the in the wife of his uh, wife. Um, and uh, what this does, I think, is it just gets us focused on the wrong thing. People read these kind of books, and they and rather than thinking about ways in which they can serve their spouse, they usually turn these things around and say, these are the things that I have to have to be happy. And so if that's the case, then, and in this reality that we'll never be able to meet all of those needs or those desires or wants in the life of our spouse, and then they won't be able to do that, do that for us, and the question is, then what? Because I guess you just end up in this sort of, a situation where you feel stuck, a situation that you think is very unfair, you're very unhappy, and as he says in his book, you're not left with any ethical alternatives. So you're sort of stuck in this place if your spouse doesn't meet your needs, but then the reason you feel kind of trapped is because you don't have any ethical alternatives to get those needs met.
Well, what the, what the Bible presents to us is very, very, very different, a very, very different focus. And uh, those are the things that we want to, to finish our time with, with today. And it's really this, it's just this issue, folks, that we don't, our greatest need is to be saved. <laughs> I mean, that's what we need. The list of needs is very short. Jesus acknowledged that in order to live, we have basic needs. We have the need for shelter and food and clothing, in which he said in those ways, in Matthew 6, you trust your heavenly father. He knows that you have need of those things. And so you trust him to provide those things. And then at the same time, you focus on what? Seeking his kingdom and his righteousness. And so we, we need salvation. And as we've mentioned, we need to be sanctified. We need to be made more, more holy. So let me just, uh, let me pray for us. Um, I know we've got a lot, we've had a lot of material to, to get through and we have full stomachs now. So it makes it even more of a challenge, but let me pray for us and we'll, we'll finish out. Father, thank you for this opportunity once again. And Lord, we do know that it's, uh, it's after lunch and uh, not only are our, we acknowledge our bodies are full, but our hearts thankfully are full as well. Our minds are full of rich truth and uh, we've enjoyed this fellowship. We just pray that as we uh, finish finish our final session this afternoon that, um, Lord, we would make the most of this opportunity and that we would grow, Lord, in our love for our spouses. We would have a greater love for the Bible, your word, and a greater love for you. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we've seen this weekend, this, this marriage thing is, is much bigger than we can possibly imagine. It is something, as we've said, it's been established by the Lord himself. From the very beginning, uh, it is for his glory. It is the first relationship between two human beings in the most fundamental and basic institu institution in society. Uh, and marriage is a covenant relationship. Uh, it, is a, it is a binding uh, arrangement that should never be manipulated or minimized. That is to say, it is a lifelong promise meant to exemplify God's loyal love and to reflect his promise to never leave us nor forsake us, which is why we work in marriage to remain steadfast in unconditional love, reconciliation, and purity. Simply put, marriage is more about God than it is about us. Uh, or as John Piper puts it, God does not exist to magnify marriage. Marriage exists to magnify God, to point people to him, to demonstrate his redemptive love, his faithfulness, his unity, his, his mercy. And it's really because of these realities that marriage is so relentlessly assaulted and attacked, uh, that marriage in our day is really redefined, that roles in marriage are, are turned upside down and mixed up, uh, that sex and intimacy in marriage is either belittled or twisted or worshipped. Satan hates marriage because Satan hates God. The world is opposed to biblical marriage because it is opposed to God. The reality is we don't need Satan and we don't need the world to ruin our marriages because we do plenty of unhelpful things on our own to ruin our marriages. We sabotage our own homes and live and, and, and by our own lives by those things which we've talked about in these sessions and even talked about in our small groups today, things like ingratitude and laziness, isolation, pride, worldliness, busyness, unforgiveness, familiarity, indifference, carelessness, self-love, neglect, hypocrisy, 
bitterness, blame shifting, judgmental attitudes, selfishness, fleshly mindsets, sky high expectations, impatience, and negativity. And Satan probably just sits back and laughs at us as he watches our folly and our foolishness. This past week, I watched a two-part series on the History Channel titled The New Age of Terror, which documented the many changes that have come to our country since September 11th, those attacks in 2001. And one of the things that stood out to me is that watching this this sort of four-hour show that, that before September 11th, our country at least seemed to be, relatively speaking, to be, to be a safe place to live and to work and to move about. But when that particular event took place, it exposed some obvious weaknesses and deficiencies in our national security that had to be addressed and had to be addressed quickly. So what did we do? Well, one of the first things that happened only 11 days after the terrorist attacks was the appointment of Pennsylvania Governor Tom Ridge as the first director of the Office of Homeland Security in the White House, an office which oversees and coordinates a comprehensive national strategy to safeguard the United States against terrorism and to respond to any future attacks. And with the passage of the Homeland Security Act by Congress in November of 2002, the Department of Homeland Security formally came into being as a standalone cabinet-level department to further coordinate and unify national homeland security efforts, opening its doors in March of 2003. You can go out to the Department of Homeland Security's website and they have information about the formation of it, and the history and all that and how it works. And they have this statement. This is basically their vision. This is their vision statement, their mission. Their vision of the Department of Homeland Security is to, quote, ensure a homeland that is safe, secure and resilient against terrorism and other hazards. Against threats that, that may come from many different channels, conventional warfare. Of course, the show went on to talk about those things, conventional warfare internet and social media, hackers, lone wolf attacks, those kinds of things. And, and that's, I guess, kind of what I want to address in this final hour uh, with you this afternoon. Not, not so much how to protect our nation, but how to protect our marriage from the many threats that come from Satan, the world, and most, I think, predominantly our, our own flesh those things that seek to destroy a God-glorifying relationship of unity, understanding, and love. So what can we do? What, what must we do to protect our marriages? It's pretty clear that almost every marriage begins with joy as newlyweds anticipate sharing life together. But sadly, not all couples live happily ever after. A large percentage of marriages, even Christian marriages, end in divorce. Other couples remain married but drift apart emotionally due to the bitterness or mutual indifference. They may share a name and a home but not a life together. So these questions of what, what can a husband or a wife do to build and preserve the joyful, loving intimacy of their marriage or what can they do to promote a security and a resilience that will carry them through the ups and the downs and the struggles of of married life, what, what can we do? What should we do? 
And before we attempt to answer those things, it might be helpful for us to think about a marriage in trouble and how it got to that point. Almost every week I meet with couples who have marriages that are far from what God intended. Some are living in different parts of the house or maybe they are separated. Perhaps they have experienced the betrayal of adultery or the pain of pornography. Sometimes they have simply gotten to a place where every conversation seems to escalate into a fight and a conflict where unity, understanding, and love would be the last words that you would use to describe their day-to-day interactions. Some of them have only been married a few years, but the vast majority of the people that I counsel, I would say in the last couple of years, have been married 15 to 30 years. So the question is, how did that happen? How did it ever get to that point? Because one of the challenges, I think, is we do premarital counseling and we counsel with young couples is just some of them, they, it's hard for them to think about a time down the road when they might not have those same feelings, those same ideas, those same, same perspectives that they have right now. They think, oh, I, I love my wife or I love my husband or, or, or we're on track and we're doing the right things. And when you talk to them about these situations of these other couples, it's, it's even hard sometimes for them to get their mind around how they could ever get to that place. And yet it does happen. We see it all the time. So how does it happen? Well, the, the book of Proverbs gives us, uh, I think, a vital clue. I want to ask you to turn to the, just the first part of the book of Proverbs. I'm going to jump around just here in the intro just for a little bit before we get into these uh, these other principles, but uh, in in the first seven chapters of Proverbs, there are there are two hundred and two verses. Uh, I would contend that 44 percent, which is eighty eight of those verses, deal with this issue of adultery and unfaithfulness in marriage. Uh, I would also point out the fact that these chapters, that in these chapters. Wisdom and the fear of the Lord are described as a path. And foolishness and sin are described as another path. For example, Proverbs 1.15 says, My son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your feet from their path, for their feet run to evil and they hasten to shed blood. So we have two ways described for us. We have two courses presented to us. We have the way of the godly. We have it's, it's referred to in these chapters as a path of justice, the path of uprightness, a good course, a straight path, the path of life. And then we have the way of evil and those who plot evil. It's referred to here as the way of darkness or the crooked and devious path. In some ways, it's described as the way to the grave. And make no mistake, the path of evil, and particularly the path of infidelity and adultery, as it's presented in Proverbs 2, 5, 6, and 7, is a road that leads to death. The end of the road is death. Chapter 2, verse 18, for her house sinks down to death and her tracks lead to death. Chapter 5, verse 23, he will die for lack of instruction and in the greatness of his folly he will go astray. Chapter 7, verse 27, her house is the way to Sheol, descending to the chambers of death. This is the sure outcome and result. 
But what we also learn from these chapters is that there are many steps and the downfall is gradual. That is to say that it takes place over time. So the question is, we know, we know how it ends. The scriptures are very clear here about where this, this ends up. But how, how did this begin? Well, it didn't, just, it didn't just happen. The man described in these passages didn't just wake up one morning and make the leap from being a servant leader or a man who loves his wife and loves his family to being fully immersed in immorality. What the passage is described for us here is that there is an encounter of some kind, and when that encounter takes place, several things follow. And I just sort of, again, these are, you got to sort of pull all these chapters together, but there's a, there's a sequence really that, that is outlined for us. And I want to give it to you, just kind of, okay, here's where the guy ends up, but how did he get there? Well, at the very beginning, we see that he desires her beauty, beauty in his heart. Right, so he encounters this, this mistress, and he desires beauty. It's interesting that the text actually tells us that he desires this in his heart. So his heart turns aside. And then, and then in that moment, the scriptures tell us that he despises. It's almost as if the scripture is saying that when he begins to desire that, in that moment, he despises her parents and her husband. Because the scriptures describe what he does here as thievery. It's as if this man is taking something that doesn't belong to him. And you can go to the end of chapter chapter 6 and verses 30 to 35 where it talks about this issue of immorality and uses those, those, uh, that, that imagery of, of stealing something that doesn't belong to you. And then he is captured by her eyelids and her words. Chapter 2 verse 16 says that she flatters with her words. Chapter 5 verse 3 says the lips of an adulteress drip honey and smoother than oil is her speech. And there's other other verses that speak to that. So he's drawn in by her eyelids. He's drawn in by her, her, her smooth speech. And at that point, the text says that he plays with fire. Talks about this in chapter 6, verse 27. Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Or can a man walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So he's playing with fire, which just means he's, he's overlooking the obvious threat. Right? So I just... I can't get this image out of my mind. We had a, uh, a uh, well, we've had two of these incidences. One was a burn barrel in our, in between my, our house and my parents' house. There's a, a grassy area and we burn sticks and things. And, and, and my son is out there and he has a, a gas, he has a gas can and he's, he's, anyway, he, he, he is, he is, tr and he's trying to hold his phone. He's trying to video him playing with the gas can and with this fire going on. And then, was it, I think it was just last summer, we're leaving to go to a movie, and Jude walks in and says, there's a fire out up in the yard area. And so they were, they were burning in this burn barrel again, but it got, it got out of control. And so this fire started to, to spread, and they went to get a hose. Well, they had turned the water off in the basement, like, to the spigot, so there was no water there. The hoses wouldn't quite reach from their house, and our house couldn't quite get to the center point. So this thing keeps going, and the wind's kind of blowing a little bit. And 
we're all out there trying to do this. We brakes, we're banging on the ground. My poor nephew is there. At one point, I look out at my nephew. Now, we're talking about a fire at this point that is twice the size of this room. Okay, now, of course, the ground that's already burnt, it's burnt, but the flame is out on the outside, and it's, it's about two feet off the ground, and it's, and it's moving, right? And this scene of my nephew with a rake banging on the ground trying to put the fire out, and there's, it's a 20-yard stretch with flames knee-high, and he has a rake. That's all he has. He has no water. He has no hose, and he's banging the ground. So we had to call 911, get the fire department uh, out there to do this. But that is, that is the nature of fire. That is the nature of fire. It, it, it's, it's, it, we have to be careful with it because it can be very destructive. And that's the way that the scriptures talk about this particular threat. And so this man just ignores that obvious threat. And from there, he puts himself in a position to encounter her. In other words, he makes a deliberate choice talks about in chapter 5 verse 8 of going him choosing to go near the door of her house in chapter 7 verse 8 making the choice to pass through the street near her corner and taking the way to her house he then chooses an opportune time chapter 7 verse 9 in the twilight in the evening in the middle of the night and in the darkness chapter 7 verse 19 at a time when this particular adulterous woman says that she tells him that her husband is not at home, but he's, he's gone on a long journey. Of course, by now, this man has confused love uh, and lust. Uh, she actually makes the statement, come and let us drink our fill of love until morning. But yet we know from a biblical perspective, this isn't love at all. He lingers. So there's this just this sort of still this just this choice that he makes to just kind of stay around this situation and around this individual, he ultimately caves, verse 22 of chapter 7, suddenly says he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool. He goes in to her or touches her, is the way it's described in chapter 6, verse 29, and he reaps the temporal consequences of these choices by the fact that he experiences a loss of possessions, energy, and health. Tells us that in chapter 5, verses 9 to 14, he experiences wounds, disgrace, and reproach. Chapter 6, verse 33, and bondage. Chapter 5, verse 22 says his own iniquities will capture the wicked and he will be held with the cords of his sin. And of course, the next stop is death. Proverbs 22, verse 14, the mouth of an adulteress is a deep pit. He who is cursed of the Lord will fall into it. In a post from Tim Challies, he, he writes this article. It's called How an Affair Really Begins. He says this. He says, one of the great misconceptions about affairs is that they begin with sex. Affairs do not begin with sex. Falling into bed with a man who is not your husband or a woman who is not your wife is never a sudden unplanned event. Instead, it is a culminating decision in a long list of terrible self-centered decisions. Then he goes on to discuss what Tommy Nelson has stated is the, the quote, ease with which people commit adultery and the steps that a person takes in pursuing that forbidden relationship. So he outlines this, and, and they all begin with the, the letter E, 
The first he mentions is this encounter. Challies talks about the inevitable encounter or chance meeting with someone uh, with someone else who's attractive to you. That person may be physically attractive. They may be attractive in character. They may be attractive in seeming to provide you with what your spouse is lacking. But regardless of the specifics, there is something about him or her that draws and attracts you and promises to offer the very things you feel you are missing in your own marriage. From encounter, it goes from that to what he calls enjoyment, which develops after that initial encounter when you find that you soon begin to enjoy your relationship with that other person. And your enjoyment of this individual allows him or her to move into that what he calls emotional space, formerly reserved for your spouse. It is here, Challies writes, that the wise person will immediately identify the danger and back away. Yet the enjoyment is pleasurable, of course, and too many men and women neglect to take the wise and godly course of action. Then there's the expediting. He says, if you do not take action against the enjoyment, you will soon begin to expedite opportunities to be with the mistress or lover. You will linger where you know they are likely to be. You will hurry to get to the place where your paths may cross. You will time the breaks in your schedule with theirs, and you will generate opportunities to talk through the phone or through Facebook or through text messaging or face-to-face. Then comes expression. He says, inevitably, this growing relationship will lead to a kind of intimacy so strong and so exhilarating that you will have to find out if he or she feels the same way. You will express your feelings. You won't come right out with the full expression of your feelings. You are too clever and too subtle for that. Instead, you will test the waters a little bit. Say something like, I really enjoy spending time with you. And then they reply, I enjoy spending time with you as well. You say, I wish I wish I could talk to my husband or wife the way that I talk to you. And they will say, I wish I could talk to my spouse the way I talk to you. And then you will advance to, I wish my spouse was more like you. And they will reply, I wish my spouse was more like you. And at that point, you are caught. You're in, he says. Tommy Nelson says it this way, you've built a bridge to fantasy land. And it's now all but certain that you will walk walk across it. The emotional bond is already there, and it is now only natural to give that emotional bond a physical expression, which leads to this final E, experience. It says all that remains is to experience the physical consummation of that enjoyment, that expression, and that emotional bond. And then you are in bed together as adulterers, entwined in a full-fledged affair. Sin always aims at the uttermost. The smallest sin is but one step to the biggest and most treacherous sin. Through it all, he says, John Owen's insight remains so crucial. John Owen said this, sin always aims at the uttermost. The smallest sin is but one step to the greatest. So the question is, what happens prior to the encounter? Because he gives us here basically encounter, enjoyment, expediting, expression and experience. And then Challies basically refers to what even comes before all of that. And this is to me the most helpful part of this, this particular article. He, he calls this elimination. And this is what he says. He says, an affair actually begins much farther back than the act of sex. Affairs do not begin when you experience sexual intimacy with someone who is not your spouse. 
An affair begins when you begin to eliminate intimacy in your marriage. And not only the intimacy of sex, but the intimacy that comes by dating, by long face-to-face conversations, and by physical affection. Instead of pursuing your spouse, you grow hard and complacent. The joy fades and the discontent rises, which provides fertile ground for adulterous relationships to grow. The elimination of intimacy. No more dating, fewer and fewer face-to-face conversations, no more pursuing your spouse, fading joy, rising levels of discontent, and increasing hardness of heart and complacency. These are the kinds of things that usually that are usually present in a marriage before a husband or a wife get to the point of committing adultery. So Proverbs teaches us that unfaithfulness in marriage doesn't happen overnight or all at once. But then think about the opposite of that. Because on the other hand, neither does faithfulness. Faithfulness also doesn't happen overnight or all at once. And so what Proverbs does is it warns us about, we, we could say this, it warns us to flee the fire but then it also exhorts us to drink the water. Because marital, you might say this way, marital infidelity always involves fixation. Marital infidelity always involves a person focusing on the wrong things or the wrong person. But on the flip side of that, fixation is also the solution. The solution that Proverbs gives gives to us is that we need to be fixated or focused on the gift of our spouse and the gift of marriage. That's why you'll notice in chapter 5, in all of this stuff that he's saying about immorality, he says in chapter 5, verse 15, drink water from your own cistern and and fresh water from your own well. Should your springs be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. As a loving hind and graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. For why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all of his paths. His own iniquities will capture the wicked, and he will be held with the cords of his sin. He will die for lack of instruction, and in the greatness of his folly, he will go astray. The Hebrew word translated in verse 23, it's translated in the New American Standard as as going astray. It's this idea of, of wandering or erring, or even it's used in some cases to talk about misleading another person. Uh, It can even convey the idea of being swallowed up by something or consumed by something. When used in the context of drinking wine, it's translated in the Old Testament as as a word for being intoxicated. What's interesting is that it's the same word that's used back in verse 19. Look at verse 19 again. As a loving hind in a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. And then here's the word. Be exhilarated always with her love. 
So again, that's the same word that we find in verse 23. It's translated as going astray. So what I, I would say is this. You, you could translate verse 19 this way. You are to be led astray, not certainly in a sinful way, but led astray or you are to be consumed by your wife's love. Which also implies something that happens over time, gradually, and after many steps. So it's as if he's saying, if, you're, if you get involved in this in infidelity, just realize it ends up in death, but it doesn't start there. You started way back here in your heart. Right? There was discontent in your heart. There was a lust for something more in your heart. There was a disbelief. A belief, a belief in your heart that God wasn't enough. A belief in your heart that God has not provided enough for you. That he's not taking care of you. And so that discontent leads to this lust for more, which leads to this series of bad and foolish decisions, which ultimately ends up in death and entrapment and all those things and a reproach that won't go away. And it's as if he's saying in Proverbs 5, in the same way that you went down this course... And you invested all of this time and all of this focus and you made all of these small decisions to go that direction. You need to drink the water that God has provided. You need to look at your marriage. You need to look at the spouse that God has given to you. And you need to continue to go down that path, continue to make choices every day. Sometimes small choices, small decisions, but decisions that add up over time. And that lead to a satisfying relationship. Many steps. In fact, one of the things that is so hurtful to a wife that has been betrayed by her husband is how much energy and de deliberate thinking and planning went into her husband's pursuit of his mistress. Because she knows, she knows that this thing didn't happen overnight. She knows all of those times when he was thinking about that and planning that and setting that situation up were also times when he wasn't thinking about and planning and trying to anticipate needs and concerns in his own family and in his own marriage. This is how it happens. We stop confessing and repenting from sin. We harden our hearts and ignore the warnings of the conscience. We lust for something more or want something more. We become discontent. In our lives, we develop an ungrateful heart. We fail to walk close to the shepherd. We fail to trust the Lord for our provision and protection. We fail to respect the boundaries that God has set and fail to build discernment and wisdom. That's why in chapter 7, verse 7, this young man is described as a man who lacks sense. Ultimately, we fail to listen to God. Which is why we find the same sort of introduction in every one of these sections dealing with adultery. In chapter 2, the first eight verses talk about this. My son, if you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you, make your ear attentive to wisdom and incline your heart to understanding. He goes on for eight verses to talk about the need for us to listen to God. To, to heed his word. Chapter 5, verse 1. My son, give attention to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may observe discretion and your lips may reserve knowledge. Chapter 6, verse 20. My son, observe the commandment of your father and do not forsake the teaching of your mother. Bind them continually on your heart. Tie them around your neck. 
Chapter 7, verse 1, my son, keep my words and treasure my commandments within you. Keep my commandments and live. And my teaching is the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister and call understanding your intimate friend. In other words, we, we could trace this moral failure back to this one thing. Not receiving God's word or treasuring God's commands. Not making our ear attentive, not inclining our heart, not crying out for discernment, not seeking wisdom. Well, what does all this have to do with protecting your marriage? Don't say it has everything to do with protecting your marriage. Because what it tells us is that every day matters. Every conversation matters. Every decision matters. Again, it's like, it's like what Shane was talking about earlier. It's just... In, in that day-to-day -day course of life, just the, this, this, those little things, those decisions that we make, that intentional, that, 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 that chosen neglect that we just choose to not do this and that because we realize that these other things are, are, are greater priorities. We don't need to wait for a 9-11 to happen in our marriage. We need to know the enemy. We don't need to think that everything is safe. We don't need to think that we, we have dealt with all of the, th the threats. In fact, this, this message, I think, is critical for young married couples. People don't usually quit doing the good things that make a marriage strong and resilient because they have a bad marriage, but because they have a good one. And because they have a good marriage, they quit praying they want to sit back and enjoy the ride. They want to quit working. They, they get lazy. They think that just because their marriage is good, that their marriage is safe. So they quit growing. They stop being vigilant because things are good and will likely respond, unfortunately, with despair when things get bad. Again, as Shane mentioned earlier, it's they, they start to coast is what happens. I put it in cruise controls. Paul, Tri Paul Tripp says this, this side of heaven, you can't be a sinner living with another sinner in coast. You can't afford to do that. So this is about getting ahead of this. This is about, again, it's about setting priorities. It's about being proactive. It's about dealing with these things on the front end. So how do we do that? How to protect your marriage? Let me just give you several, several principles as we... Uh, finish up today. These are 10 different ones There's, that we could add, certainly add more and more to this list, but hopefully these will be helpful and, and, and bring some application even to some of the things we've already uh, been considering this weekend. Number one, pursue a close relationship with God through the word and prayer. Uh, this is about your satisfaction in God, which, which is the key that unlocks a thousand doors. John Piper says it this way, he says, you must love your spouse more than wealth, more than friends, more than ease, more than sex, more than fame, more than life, but less than God. Satisfaction in God above every earthly thing, including your spouse, is the source of great long suffering, without which husbands cannot love like Christ and wives cannot follow like the bride of Christ, the church. This is about making your personal walk with the Lord a priority because it's so easy to avoid a consistent time in the scriptures. It's so easy 
to, to avoid time in prayer. But this is time where the Lord deals with you. This, this time in prayer in your life, this time in God's word on a, on a consistent basis, is this is that time when God convicts your heart. This is that time when God revives and feeds your soul. This is when he instructs you about how to be a godly husband or wife. This is, this is that time when you can carry your burdens to the Lord, when you can learn to praise the Lord through the struggles, when you can confess your weaknesses and sins and intercede for others. When couples with troubled marriages come to us for counseling, we typically ask each of them about their prayer and their devotional life. And in most cases, we have found a correlation between the lack of a vibrant personal walk with the Lord and a failing marriage. But that's no surprise, right? It's no surprise. John 15, Jesus said, I'm the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. It is only as we are strengthened by God's word through his spirit that we can endure in love. It is only through prayer that we are able to keep loving. If something isn't right with your relationship with your spouse, start to address it by first making sure things are right between you and the Lord. So again, just those basic things. Shane talked about them this morning. Discipleship, worship, time in, in the word of God. Number two, resolve conflicts quickly and completely. The most basic response to any difficulty is the famous fight or flight response. Sometimes there are nasty, mean, tears evoking, loud screaming, door slamming responses. For others, it's an avoidance. It's, it's easier to avoid the other person than to do the hard work of dealing with the problem. Maybe you live in the same house, but in a sense live separate lives. Maybe... For some of you men, you hide at work in order to avoid the marriage. Ephesians 5, 29, Paul said this, let, un, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. So this has everything to do with how God has treated you. And the question is, how has the Lord dealt with you? Psalm 103, just as an example. The Lord, verse 8, is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, he will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. And it's in light of that reality that we are to love and to show mercy and to forgive. Sort of a parallel passage to that passage in Ephesians is Colossians 3.12. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. It's always tied to what the Lord has done. It's always tied to the way God is related to you and how he's treated you and how he's been merciful to you. And beyond all this, he says, verse 14, beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity, which means when we fail, 
We ought to confess and repent and be reconciled. And when our spouses, our spouse sins and fails, we ought to see that as an opportunity for us to show grace, which resembles the grace that we have received from God. Or you might say it this way, we ought to try to outdo one another in showing love. What often happens is that a couple will periodically engage in arguments in which each speaks in anger and says hurtful things. Over time, they cool down and life goes on without ever properly resolving the disputes. But as the years pass, their marriage is affected by hurts and scars which never heal. As Rob Green, Green describes in his, he has a premarital book called Tying the Knot. He says, he, he describes this as, as individuals or couples becoming like hoarders who collect the relational trash rather than take out the trash. And things just start to pile up. And couples who were once happy and excited soon become upset and disappointed, feeling as if they are walking on eggshells under a dark cloud of despair, their homes full of memories of hurt, destruction, and discouragement. This is what happens when we sin in anger. This is what happens when we allow, as Paul talks about in Ephesians 4, allowing the sun to go down on our anger. He says we give the devil uh, an opportunity, or you might say a place, because anger that is not dealt with in a timely way will usually fester and spread and cause further division and discord. As believing couples, we must be determined to do whatever is necessary to be fully reconciled to one another. Number three, along sort of with this, this idea of resolving problems, communicate honestly. Few, few things are more important in marriage than mutual trust, and few things are more destructive to marriages than falsehood. It is very common to hear the victim of marital infidelity say something like this, I can forgive the sex, but I don't know if I can forgive the lies or if I can ever trust them again. Paul tells the Ephesians, therefore, in verse 25 of chapter 4, laying aside falsehood, speak truth each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. In a similar way, a married couple becomes one body. And if the, if, if the rest of the body can't trust the eyes to see the danger or the legs to run to safety, the entire body is at risk. And in marriage, we must be able to trust one another. One aspect of having a truthful marriage is that each spouse must strive to make it safe for the other person to honestly confess sins and failings. A wife may not want to tell her husband that she got a traffic ticket because she fears his angry reaction. A husband who has lied about something going on at his job may fear a dramatic emotional outburst from his wife. But even if it is hard to hear the truth, we can give thanks to God for helping the other person to be honest. As sinners who have, been, who, have, who have received much grace from God, we can and should have compassion on our fellow sinners by helping restore rather than to condemn them. We need honesty, transparency, trust. Number four, make the church a priority. Make the church a priority. And Paul speaks to this as well in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 11. He talks about those gifts given to the church for the equipping of the saints. And he talks about this, this building up of one another in love and, and uh, 
Uh, Brian mentioned those, those things last night. Uh, the truth is, folks, God blesses and strengthens his people through the ministry of the church, both through the public preaching of the word of God, as well as the members of the body as they build one another up. On the flip side, Hebrews warns us that the neglect of gathering with the people of God is to the detriment of your soul and to your family. Christian couples need to be in a strong church. They need Godly leaders caring for their souls. They need the encouragement, the counsel, and the accountability of body life. Couples who don't have this kind of faithful care suffer when they are in the midst of a crisis. Couples who don't have this kind of care are usually ill-equipped to help others in the midst of their crisis. I'm amazed, folks, at how many people come, couples come to our counseling ministry and who are going through what they're going through and no one in their church, because most of the people that I counsel are coming from other churches in our community. Um, how many of them, the people in their church have no idea what's going on? And then I'll ask them sometimes, have you, have you told your Sunday school teacher? Have you told your small group leader? Have you talked to your pastor? Oh, I would never do that. <laughs> I would never talk to them. I would never go to them. Or I have gone. Sometimes they say I have gone and I've talked to them and they told me that they couldn't help, which is a tragedy. If somebody actually would, would open up to that extent and say, no, we got, we got some issues, we have some problems, and then sometimes even pastors telling them they can't help or they don't have time. So just bluntly, folks, join, and I know most of you are members of a church, join a local church, get involved in the church, submit to the leaders, be accountable, serve the body, give and support the ministry. I mean, be involved, be heavily heavily involved in that. You need that in your life. And it's not just about, it, it's not simply so that you are not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It's the fact that you have a responsibility to minister to other people in the body. And if you're not there to do that, then they could be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This is not just a one-way street. This is that we need that mutual accountability and encouragement in the body. That's God's design. Number five, establish fences. Establish fences. This is about being circumspect in your dealings with the opposite sex. Husbands and wives, you both must be careful in relationships with the opposite sex, not because you think you would do something wrong, but because you are determined not to do something wrong. You cannot afford to have weak boundaries. You must be aware of the words that you speak to others, even if they appear to be innocent. So I would just say this. Think about, think about the, the nice things that you say to others. Think about the ways that you go out of your way to encourage others. Think about the verbal affirmations that you give to others. And then think about if or how often you say these things to your spouse. And the question is simply, is there a gap? Is there a gap between those things? I mean, are you out there constantly encouraging and building up and affirming others and then failing to bring that affirmation and that building up to your own husband or wife? You also have to be careful about how vulnerable you are with others. Mutual vulnerability leads to closeness. And when men, when men and women spend time openly discussing their innermost thoughts and feelings to each other, mutual attraction is likely. 
Again, few Christians plan to have an affair, yet many wind up in an inappropriate physical or emotional relationship that threatens their marriage. So I'm just saying, don't think it can't happen to you. Don't think it can't happen to you. Establish fences. How will you interact with others at work? How will you interact with others at the gym or the school or even at the church? How will you interact with others when it comes to email and, and phone calls or social media? Again, don't wait till 9-11, right? Don't wait till this thing comes and then all of a sudden you're like, whoa, what was go what's going on? I thought we had all, the, all these things covered. Discuss these things with your spouse. Set your standards. Help each other. Look out for each other. Establish fences. I, I remember hearing Jerry Ragg, he's a pastor down in Jupiter, Florida, but even talking about on Sunday morning that he, he takes his Bible after he gets through preaching and as he's coming down and he's wanting to greet visitors, and but he talks about that situation where a female in the church is coming to ask him something and he says, I get my Bible. <laughs> I get my Bible between me and that person. And so he just, he's like, and he's just thinking practically. Of, of, I need to set boundaries. And he's like, I want my Bible right here so that this person is like, it's like a, like a shield. He wants his Bible up there just to communicate. There's, there's boundaries here. There's boundaries. I mean, and, and it affects what I do as a counselor. It affects what I do as a pastor. It affects who I meet with during the week and, 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 and when I meet with them. And we have standards even in our, in our, in our office setting and Who's there at the office and when are they there and how many women are there and how many men are there and there's cameras in the foyer and there's cameras in the hallway and it's like, why? Because we want to have, we, we need fences. We need boundaries. We don't, we don't need to be weak in those areas. And the same is true in, in, our, in our marriages. Establish fences. Number six, continue to romance. Again, we're not, we're not disconnecting this from our relationship with Christ. We understand that romance is not the hub of marriage. Jesus is the hub and romance is a spoke on the wheel. Or as Paul Tripp states in his marriage book, the one that you have in front of you, a good marriage doesn't grow out of the soil of romance. No, the soil in which a good marriage grows is the soil of worship and the fruit that a good marriage produces is the fruit of sweet long-term and mutually satisfying romance. Now we affirm that, but we also affirm that sexual attractiveness and beauty and desire and delight between a husband and a wife are right and a, even a cause of rejoicing. That is to say that the Bible is warmly in favor of romance and intimacy within the marriage. Now regarding sexual intimacy explicitly, I think it's important for you as a, as a young couple to get this into its proper place, right? We don't want to have too high a view of sexual intimacy. Uh, we don't want to somehow turn sex into a god or a goddess or think of sex as a savior. Uh, like any other idol, that, that, will, that will always lead to disappointment and it, and it will delude us. So we don't want to have too high a view of this this area of our marriage, and yet we don't want to have too low a view of this. We don't want to view sex within marriage as something that is unspiritual or dirty. That is really the point that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He essentially says that on your wedding day, you surrender authority over your body to your wife or to your husband. 
And Paul is very concerned to prevent sex from dying within marriages. So in verse 5, he tells husbands and wives not to deprive one another of this. In fact, he tells them to devote time, energy, and attention to it. Christopher Ash, in his book on marriage, says this, Christians tend to focus on the epidemic of sexual activity outside of marriage, but we should probably focus as much on the epidemic of sexual inactivity within Christian marriages. So we, 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 need, to, we need to get this in its proper place. On the one hand, it's not the be-all and end-all of marriage. It's not a god or a goddess. It's not something that can save us or give us fulfillment or identity. But on the other hand, sex is very important, and the sexual relationship needs to be nurtured as the heart of a relationship of faithful covenant love. That is to say, around sex, there is friendship and companionship. We know that sex is, is far more than than physical activity. It's about generosity. It's about service. It's about serving your spouse for who they are and not what you want them to be. It's about satisfying the other person. It's about respect and consideration and commitment. Someone said this, it is a short step from loving you to loving me and wanting you. Think about that. It's just a little slight difference, but a big one in the end, right? It is a short step from a spouse loving their spouse to loving themselves and wanting their spouse. So we don't separate these things. I mean, if we're talking about desires in the context of this of, of marital sex, I'm saying you can't disconnect that from what the Bible describes as biblical love, which is sacrifice, self-denial, commitment, not a feeling. Number seven, fight for simplicity. Fight for simplicity. What I'm referring to here is the need for you as a busy husband or a busy wife to not ever lose sight of the big picture. Just go back to the very beginning. Okay, just turn back there, Genesis 1, in the beginning, God. Okay, God is. Hebrews says God is the rewarder of those who seek him. He is the creator. He is the one who sets the boundaries. He is the one who blesses and judges creation. He is the greatest gift. But he also gave us many other gifts. You think about this. You just go back to the, to the first two chapters of Genesis, and it's, 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 it's not a bad idea sometimes to just think, okay, all this stuff going on, let's just think simply about this. God is the greatest gift in my life, and I'm always supposed to be dependent upon him. There's never a, a moment that I don't need the Lord, but God has also given me many gifts, and God gave man gifts in the garden. He gave man, think of these things. I just made a bullet list of these. He gave man an inner life. He gave him a heart with affections and cognition and volition. He gave him the ability to reason and the ability to desire and the ability to, to, to choose. He gave man an outer life, a body through which to serve and obey God. And he gave man rest, right? Which is often overlooked and yet we'll spend a third of our life doing this, right? Unless, Clay, you know how 
yeah, we were talking about we were talking about sleep earlier, <laughs> and how, how 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 the sleep seems to I mean, those who have young children. Uh, you're like, yeah, third, sure, yeah, love to be, love to be spending a third of my life doing that with little ones running around. But that's important for us because rest. Think about it this way, folks. Rest is that when you're asleep, you are never more vulnerable than when you're asleep. And yet God designed you to do that a third of your existence here on this planet. Why would he do that? Well, he does that so that he, every single day you have a reminder that you need him. You can do all these things to take care of yourself. You can do all these things in these attempts to try to provide safety and, and to guard your life. But hey, at some point you've got to go to sleep, right? And you're totally vulnerable. And so it's like God built into creation this reminder every day that we need to depend upon him, not just during those hours, but during our waking hours. God also gave Adam a home, right? The Lord planted a garden in Eden and placed Adam there. He gave him sustenance. He gave him food. He gave him work and meaningful responsibility. It says the Lord gave Adam a job to subdue and rule over creation and to cultivate and keep the garden. And he gave Adam someone to share life with. He gave him a companion. The Lord gave Adam a helper corresponding to him. I'm just saying, sometimes you've got to remind yourself of these things. That we are, at, a, at the most basic level, we are to fear, love, trust, and obey God. And we are to enjoy his good gifts. We're to thank God for his gifts, but not worship his gifts. Because that's what went wrong, right? And that's what we see every week in our counseling ministry. Is we see people neglecting their inner life, neglecting their outer life, sometimes worshiping their outer life, or, or, or idolizing rest, or not getting enough, or, or worshiping food, or worshiping their jobs, or worshiping their relationships and their marriages and those kinds of things. And so what they've done is they've just replaced God is the one who's being worshipped. They've taken the gift and they're worshipping the gifts or using the gifts for their own self-serving purposes. So we need to worship God, but enjoy his good gifts. And remember that success is faithfulness. Success is faithfulness. Faithfulness in our stewardship of God's gifts and time. I told our small group earlier, no man can do all the good that needs to be done all that others want him to do, and all that he himself wants to do. And when things get crazy busy, we have to know that there is always time to do what God requires. There's always time to do what God requires. J. Oswald Sanders says this, In the economy of God, the discharge of one God-given duty or responsibility will never involve the sinful neglect of another. So we've got to keep pulling ourselves back to those fundamentals. We want to be faithful stewards. Eight, we want to be careful about serving leftovers. Now, personally, folks, I don't mind leftovers, okay? In fact, this earlier this week, I got excited about leftovers because we had squash casserole on Tuesday night. And I was hoping that there was enough leftover from that night to the next day that when I got home on a Wednesday night that there would be some, and there was, and I was delighted. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about the kind of leftovers that come from the fridge. I'm talking about, we, we could call them relational leftovers. We call them emotional leftovers. They're the ones that remain after the prime energy and attention has already been given to others. 
busy people rarely give their best to the ones that they love. That's the sad reality. They serve leftovers. But a marriage cannot survive on leftovers forever. So, men, make a conscious effort to give your best time to your wife. Women, make a conscious effort to give your best energies to your husband. Husbands, when something exciting happens during the day, consider waiting and sharing it with your wife before you share it with your colleagues or coworkers. What happens, I think, sometimes is men go to their workplace. It, it could be something that's related to their work or even something that's not related to the work, but they hear something, they learn something, they get excited about it. They talk with their colleagues about it, and then they get home later that afternoon and either they don't bring it up because the enthusiasm has died down or they share it with their wife, but not with the enthusiasm that they had at 10 o'clock that morning. And then someone comes along that was that knows the husband and says, oh, I saw your husband the other day. You should, you should have seen how excited he was when he found this thing out. And the wife's thinking either one, I don't know what you're talking about because he didn't tell her. Or, well, I remember him telling me that, but he didn't tell it to me the way you're describing it. And it's as if what he did is he took that and he spent it here and he didn't reserve the best. Right. And I just told guys, maybe it's just a good habit to get into. And I'm working on this myself. Of when something like that happens, just don't don't share it right then. Go home and share it with your wife and then go share it the next day at work with your coworkers. Or wives, consider sharing those sorts of things with your husband before you share them with your mother. Or you share them with your children. Men, work hard to become a servant leader and a loving leader. Wives, work hard to become a devoted and responsive partner. Don't let your marriage slip to the back burner. Number nine, and we got another minute or two. Tell each other thank you often. Right before the charge to husbands and wives, Paul writes in Ephesians 5, verse 20, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ, which is where we started last night. And again, right before he speaks to the issue of married life, Paul writes in Colossians 3, 17, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Let me just say this. Be careful about taking your spouse for granted. Be careful about taking your spouse for granted. Be thankful for your marriage. Be thankful for your spouse and tell them you appreciate them. Tell them you appreciate them. And finally, get help sooner rather than later. Get help sooner rather than later. If you are struggling, be honest with your spouse. And try to solve the problem. Try to work together. Seek the Lord. Dive into the scriptures. But if you aren't having much success, reach out to a trusted Christian friend or a couple. Someone that is going to point you to Christ and to the word of God. Don't just keep kicking the can down the road. Because believe it or not, in the long run, it's easier to solve problems than it is, is to ignore them. It's easier to solve your problems, to get them on the table and to work through them than it is to ignore them. Trust me, because 
I'm telling you, I meet with people and I'm just sitting there thinking, how did they get here? And, and it's just, folks, it just, it's just little stuff. <laughs> it's, just, it's just little offenses. It's, it's just little comments, just a little lack of forgiveness here, a little lack of mercy there. But it's that over days and weeks and months and sometimes years and sometimes it's decades of that. Proverbs 18.1 says, He who separates himself seeks his own desire and quarrels against all sound wisdom. We need to be those who embrace God's wisdom and get godly counsel from people who can discern the issues and can walk with us and speak the truth to us in love. And so when we, even in our premarital counseling, we just told a couple recently, listen, you try to resolve these issues, but after a month, if, you, I mean, if you've had multiple conversations about this and in a month has gone by and you're still, you can't, you're not making any progress, you've got to reach out to somebody. You've got to get someone involved in that. Not just go, oh, well, it is what it is, and then just sweep it under the rug and then move on. That thing is still there, and it will come up again, and it will be more difficult, more difficult to address later on. Well, let me just challenge you as we close. Um, we've got, of course, we had our resources out. There's a number of good books. We gave you the one, What Did You Expect, by Paul Tripp. When Sinners Say I Do is also a great resource. Uh, we use in our counseling ministry by Dave Harvey. Uh, there's also an MP3 that I have. It's called Husbands Too Busy to Notice, Too Distracted to Care. It is an audio uh, t teaching from Paul Tripp from a counseling conference that we were a part of years ago. Um, it's something I think I could I could probably get to, to anyone that, that wants to maybe uh, listen to that. Your Family, God's Way by Wayne Mack. Of course, Excellent Wife and Exemplary Husband by Martha Peace. And uh, Stuart Scott, uh, there's been a lot here, you know. I mean, we talked about it in our small group. Um, you're, you, the reality, folks, is that you're going to not remember 95% of what we talked about within just a few days, okay? But hopefully something stood out. Hopefully the Lord used our time together this weekend to convict your heart, to encourage you, to challenge you in some way. So I would just say don't get overwhelmed by all of that. I, I would say my, my question for you as we close is what is the one thing that you could do to help improve your marriage over the next three months? What's the one thing? Is it, is it something regarding your communication? Is it your schedules? Is it your differences about intimacy? Is it your prayer life and your walk with the Lord? Is it, I mean, what is it about these things and spell it out and get that locked in and then take specific steps in that direction? Because what often happens is you are convicted by about something, you jot something down, and then you know what, a couple days from now, after you've changed another two dozen diapers, and you've been, you know, dealt with, you know, this thing at work and that thing at church, and it gets, life gets busy, and this, this slowly will fade away, and, and I'm saying, you've got to be diligent. You've got to be diligent to say, I, I've got to do something. I need to do something with what I've learned. I'm accountable for it. I've got to be a doer of the word. And if it helps you to do that, I would just say narrow down. Don't try to go out of here and accomplish 10 things. What's the one thing you could do that would help to improve your marriage, make your marriage more honoring to Christ, and hammer that thing out and take specific steps to make that happen? All right, let me pray for us. And then I think uh, we're on track because we initialized things at 2.15. I think Randy may have just a closing comment. For us, but let me pray for us and then we'll, we'll wrap things up.
Lord, we, again, we just thank you for the time. Uh, Lord, thank you for your word. And Lord, we just ask that you would give us marriages that are marked by unity, that are marked by, by love and by understanding, that you would give us as marriage, marriages, Lord, you would give us marriages for, for God. Marriages, Lord, that would bring you great honor and glory. And I pray, God, that you would, you would help us to continue to, to grow and to strive and to, to keep making progress. Lord, even those we know, we even said it last night and, and even again today, we, we know you are the one that is working in us. And yet, Lord, we, we understand the responsibility we have uh, to believe and to obey and to follow and to submit and to be a part of this process of sanctification. So, Lord, I pray that we would feel the, the weight of that and that, Lord, we would be diligent to, again, be doers of the word that we've heard this weekend. Again, we thank you for your patience, long-suffering, your gospel. Thank you for saving us. And uh, Lord, we worship you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.